I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Alice Chang. Alice, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a project manager, right? What is that? So what I do on a daily basis, this is for PCIGR, the Pacific Center for Ice Topic and Geochemical Research. Um, I look after major projects that, um, that go across or affect the entire facility in general. So that involves uh, overseeing administration for, for projects that come in, uh, grant facilitation for, for major grants that we are interested in applying for, and sometimes on a technical basis, looking after the technical or science aspects um, of a project from a managerial aspect. I'm sure that makes you very popular. Everyone loves the money from grants, but no one loves doing the work. So um you're perfect. <laughs> right. I'm the person, I guess I'm the go-to person then. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, now, are you just starting this or have you been at it for a while? I have been in this position since uh, summer of 2019, so just about three years. Great. Just at the start of COVID, I guess. Or, or before. Yes, uh, about nine months before COVID started. <laughs> Is this what you studied in school or, or what did, what's your background? So my background, I am actually a geologist. Um, I, I did not study any management, but um, I gained management experience along the way. So um, as with any scientist, I, I did lab and field work um, throughout graduate studies. And then starting in my postdoc, I started managing a lab. So looking after um, daily operations, instruments, managing people, students, and, and visiting scientists who came into the lab. Um, and then from there, I f- gained further managerial um, experience until I got to this point where where I'm more or less comfortable looking after projects and people and timelines and, and budgets and that kind of thing. Wonderful. What kind of geology did you study? I started out as a sedimentologist um, here at uh, EOS, Earth and Ocean Sciences, um, and then I moved on to micropaleontology for my graduate studies. And then eventually for my postdoctoral studies, I went into geochemistry and specifically marine geochemistry. You actually donated some of your microfossils to the museum. I did. So I donated a slab of what is called diatomite or diatomaceous earth. And that particular sample dated to approximately 6.8 million years, if I remember correctly, uh, the late Miocene. And that sample came from California from a a diatomite quarry. And it consists of very fine layers of sediment, so sub-millimeter to millimeters in thickness, uh, consisting of the remains of diatoms, which are single-celled marine organisms that build a very intricate uh, shell made out of silica or glass. And um, those layers of diatoms 
uh, alternate with layers of detritus um, washed off from, from terrestrial environments. So kind of an alternating layer of marine diatoms uh, in the spring and summer bloom, and then a terrestrial layer coming from the fall and winter. Excellent. It's a beautiful specimen. Why did you go into project manage management? Well, I part of me, I, I do like to look after things to make sure they are done right and on time. Um, of course, no child grows up and say, one day when I'm big, I'm going to be a project manager. <laughs> That's not how things ended up. Um, I do like the science. Um, I do like to work on a project basis. So everything that I like to do when I was a student was a project um, or term papers as opposed to writing exams. So I guess I'm naturally inclined to try to manage projects as best as I can, um, starting out with my own projects, but then branching out to making sure everyone else is, is um, on time and on budget and doing things the right way. There's certainly a, a sense of satisfaction seeing everything wrapped up nicely and um, having a firm end. For sure. <laughs> I can certainly understand that. Um, most careers I find are, are fairly circuitous. It's very rarely a linear path from uh, school to where you end up. Um, you mentioned that you started off with uh, geography, um, geology, sorry. <laughs> uh, how did you end up running a lab? Right. So um, I did start out in geology. Uh, my interests were mainly in research. Um, so I did as much research as I could. And then during my postdoctoral fellowship, research started overlapping with management. Um, I was in a lab where my supervisor was busy doing uh academic duties um, with the university. So he had no one to look after his lab. So I became a kind of de facto lab manager for him. Um, yes. I'm trying to remember the early part of the question. <laughs> oh, just how did you end up uh, running a lab uh, from geology? Right, right. So um, eventually uh, we did have... a. Um, many large projects that have to be had to be completed. So somebody had to run the project plus manage the lab because other students also needed to use the lab and the instrumentation within the lab. So I, I guess I kind of eased into uh, being a lab manager. And then from there, um, after I finished my postdoctoral fellowship, I landed a job back at UBC uh, in forestry. They needed somebody to to run and manage their stable tope facility over there. So I figured, well, I have um, a science background, I have some instrumentation um, experience, and I have some managerial experience. So, so then I also eased into that uh, lab management role over at Forestry. Great. Uh, by the way, where was this lab that you were running, running beforehand? Right. So the lab that I was running beforehand was at the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria. Um, I'm curious, either as a geologist or as a project manager, have you made any discoveries that you care to share? I would say uh, a discovery came during my uh, doctoral studies. So 
During that time, I was looking at marine sediments off the west coast of Vancouver Island in a secluded inlet called Effingham Inlet. Um, and just like the diatomaceous earth uh, sample that I donated to the museum, I was looking at kind of the, a more modern analog to that. So instead of Miocene or six million year old uh, diatomaceous sediments, I was looking at late Holocene, so 5,000 years uh, before present up to today, modern times. Um, so as I had mentioned before, for the California samples, we have these alternating layers of diatoms during the spring and summer bloom, and then detritus washed off during the tor torrential rains during autumn and winter. So in the Vancouver Island uh, marine sediments, I was looking through the microscope at some thin sections that I made from the um, unconsolidated sediments. And I thought I saw a repetitive sequence of diatom species during the spring bloom going into summer, and then again hitting the fall and winter detrital layer. So I got pretty excited seeing this repetitive um, cycle over and over, year after year of diatom species. And I thought that was a great discovery, but it turned out that somebody had made that discovery before in 1957 uh, at another location. And apparently diatoms do this around the world. They, depending on the temperature and the light uh, conditions at the beginning of each season, um, certain species will show up repetitively every year. And this is why we call these layers annual varves, <laughs> because they occur annually at a predictable um, pattern of diatom species. Well, whether or not someone else discovered it first, um, I mean, uh, experimental re repetition is something that often doesn't happen. So you uh, validated their their findings. For sure. I, I can, I guess I can claim to say that I confirmed uh, the seasonal cycle of diatoms in Effingham Inlet that no one had confirmed before. That's just as valuable. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, what projects are you working on right now? So currently, uh, right at this very minute, <laughs> I am working on having an analytical instrument installed and tested. Um, so these are light-stable isotope ratio mass spectrometers. And um, we currently, or we had, moved this instrument from another department on campus over to PCIGR and had it installed professionally by a service engineer. And I am currently testing the instrument to ensure that it is operating fully and, and it's optimized. Um, so that testing is ongoing right now. And um, we'll see where that leads me. <laughs> and what's that machine for? So this instrument uh, analyzes light stable isotopes. And in particular, we are interested in carbon isotopes and nitrogen isotopes. So for anyone out there who's inclined, this is um, the ratio between carbon-13 to carbon-12 and the ratio uh, of nitrogen-15 to nitrogen-14. And um, these instruments can analyze a variety of samples from geological to biological samples. Um, for anyone who's interested in 
understanding what these isotopic ratios are telling us about in terms of past environments or past paleo diets, if we're looking at uh, stomach contents, let's say, um, or different kinds of plants, so C4 versus C3 plants. So it's quite a versatile instrument, um, along with its peripheral, uh, in, which is a sample introduction system called an elemental analyzer. Um, which can also analyze for elemental concentrations of carbon and nitrogen. So the mass spectrometer does the isotopic ratios and the elemental analyzer does the uh, concentrations. You mentioned carbon 14 or 13? 13. How many carbons are there? <laughs> there are three species of carbon. So there's carbon 14, which is radiocarbon, which is radio active and we don't deal oh, with that. I didn't know um, then yeah. there yeah. <laughs> then there's carbon 13, which is a stable isotope of carbon, then carbon 12, which is the main carbon that we deal with, which is which comprises most of the carbon on Earth. Okay. Who knew? <laughs> now in your time as a geologist, uh, I'm sure you did lots of field work. Uh, one of my favorite parts of these interviews is hearing about the crazy things that happen in the field. Um, do you have any crazy field stories you'd care to share or even any, any crazy lab stories? Crazy field work stories? Well, I, I'll, the field work that I did during my doctoral studies um, involved one week on a Canadian Coast Guard ship called the John P. Tully. Um, that was my first ever research cruise and I think my last. <laughs> I, I did enjoy it, though I did get seasick on the voyage from uh, Sydney Harbour and Vancouver Island around the southern tip of Vancouver Island and over to Effingham Inlet on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Um, nobody warned me that I shouldn't have eaten a big breakfast the day of the cruise. And when we were doing the boat and fire drill, Shortly after lunch, I already wasn't feeling very good, and I think everyone can figure out what happened next. <laughs> I went, disappeared from the boat and fire drill and just ended up in my cabin for eight hours until we arrived at our destination in, in Effingham Inlet when the waves stopped. So um, other than that, um, most of my field work has gone pretty smoothly. I'm glad. <laughs> Now, you mentioned earlier uh, some of the real-world applications of what you do. Um, tell me more. Why is it important? Um, in terms of stable isotopes, um, they are important because uh, elemental concentrations can only tell us so much uh, about a sample or an environment, for instance. Um, stabilized topes takes us one step further into understanding more deeply um, our environments or our past diets, um, the tree species that were around uh, in the past, let's say. When I hear geochemistry, my mind thinks it's the chemistry of rocks, and that's not terribly exciting. And then I chat with um, geochemists and a scientist like yourself, and you've got your fingers in all sorts of different pies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I again, I started out as a micropaleontologist with diatoms. And, and diatoms are really interesting looking at the species. 
but they only tell me so much about water temperature or um, salinity in the marine environment. And diatoms take a darn long time to identify in the microscope. With geochemistry, in the same amount of time that I can analyze one microscope slide, um, I could do a whole, a whole lot of geochemical proxies, uh, prepare the samples, throw them on various instruments, and then get a whole bunch of um, data and results back that tell me a, a suite of things that's going on in, in the environment, let's say. That diatom species, just looking at diatoms alone, um, cannot give a, a complete picture of. Wonderful. And I should mention, that machinery is always working, right? It can always work. <laughs> uh, in, instruments are temperamental. Um, my experience is that I will get an instrument tuned, warmed up, um, throw some samples on, watch it for seven hours, looks pretty good, go home at 5.30 p.m., come back the next day and realize that the run had stopped at 5.20 p.m. because the instrument just wasn't happy that I went home. <laughs> they know. They know when we, we've, uh, we're not looking. <laughs> oh, sorry, what I meant was, um, yeah, it's always working unless it's broken. But even if people don't see anyone in your lab, you're still working. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, the the other explanation is yes, we are always keeping those instruments busy, uh, whether or not you do see people in the lab or not, because the instruments are automated. Um, at least the modern instruments are automated. You put samples in an auto sampler, and the instrument will put that sample in for analysis at a set point in time, and, and you don't have to worry about it. So you can literally have a run that lasts for 24 hours, 36 hours, you know, just walk away from it when it works. <laughs> um, but the operator or the student or the researcher does not have to be there. I, I can't imagine being there for 36 hours straight. Um, so thank goodness for automated systems um, it, as opposed to manual systems like some older instruments. You were remote working before it was cool. Oh, yes. Yes, we were remote working before people knew what that meant. <laughs> now, you clearly love your work, uh, but what's the best part about it? Currently, the best part um, can sometimes also be uh, a difficult point, which is I never, almost never do the same thing twice, at least in two days in a row. So, um Things are always changing. Uh, something comes up at the last minute, I have to deal with it. So, so yes, it's a challenge sometimes not to know what's happening from moment to moment. But then it also keeps me on my toes that I have to be ready for what comes next. Um, so I actually find that aspect of what I do kind of exciting. Um, I... Not the kind of person who, who, who likes the too routine nine to five uh, thing every day. Um, so a bit of excitement and, and unexpected things every day makes the work um, interesting. We'll say that. That makes total sense. I can totally empathize. Um, you know, being in a small museum, I wear many hats too. Um, but it sounds like you enjoy bringing order to chaos. Yes, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has, has that affected your career? 
Well, I guess I would identify as a racialized Canadian, so I would be considered uh, Asian Canadian and also female. Um, in terms of how that has affected my work, um, I have not noticed uh, any impediments or um, any setbacks because of that. Um, the only setbacks that I could think of are my own insecurities. Um, so, but I've been very fortunate that the people who I've worked with um, have given me opportunities, um, have challenged me to do better, um, and have always supported what I've done in science and also in, in, in management as well. So I'm, I'm very grateful um, for those who, um, whom I work with over the years and currently. Wonderful. And I'm sure they're grateful to you, too, uh, for all that you do. Uh, do you feel like um, your field or your, your lab is really open and welcoming, or is it more um, insular and uh, looks after their own? Or does it do both? Um, I suppose... Geology as a field has traditionally been insular, um, but perhaps that's a viewpoint from 30 plus years ago. Uh, ever since I got into geology as an undergrad in the early 90s, I'm dating myself, um, I, I've found it quite welcoming. Um, I think by the time I graduated, half Half the class, I think, were female. Um, many were racial, racialized Canadians or, or visible minorities. Um, so I, th I think geology has come a long ways uh, since uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Absolutely. Um, I certainly know that when I started here, I thought it would just be a department of, lum <laughs> a department of lumberjacks. Um, and I've been really surprised and impressed with how many um, people who I wouldn't expect to be in geology are here. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad you uh, once again confirmed <laughs> uh, someone else's observations as well. Now, you touched on this a little bit. Um, one thing that we've all had to deal with is the pandemic. How did COVID impact your work or did it at all? So at the time that COVID came along uh, in March 2020, I was doing mainly office or computer-based work. So in that case, it was relatively easy for me to um, convert to working from home. So working remotely, I set up a workstation at home at the dining room table, which I think many people did. Um, and don't think my work was impacted very much um, because it wasn't lab-based. Uh, and I know from my lab-based colleagues that during the uh, research curtailment for three months on campus, um, that a lot of the lab work was affected. Um, but in the background, the office work continued. Um, now, of course, everything else in society also shut down. So it's fair to say that the office work also slowed down. So there were impacts to that that part of the um, that part of the work, but also right at the tail end of 2019, I was 
just about to start um, talking about installing these light-stable isotope mass spectrometers, uh, the ones that I'm working on optimizing now. So that discussion started back in 2019, um, and of course we could not move on to um, getting the instruments installed until literally just a couple of weeks ago. So, so the lab work in that sense um, was delayed by over two years. Uh, so that, that part had to be put on hold, but the office work eventually picked up uh, and I was quite busy working remotely uh, during the pandemic. I know because your machinery is so specialized, it's often hard to get uh, re replacement parts or spare parts. Um, now, the whole world is understanding what that's like <laughs> with the supply ch uh, chain issues. Um, has that affected your ability to get spare parts? Um, for now, not right now, because we, we had just set up the instruments, but we had difficulty booking our uh, service engineer to come out to UBC to get the installation done. First, because of the flight restrictions. Um, second, because of the, the various waves, Delta and Omicron that came along. Um, so that put uh, several months of delay uh, in getting the instruments set up. But in terms of supplies, uh, so far we haven't had a problem with ordering supplies possibly because our vendor keeps well stocked <laughs> with the supplies they have now, but we will see um, where that takes us uh, as we move forward. Right. Of course, the person would be uh, very important. Um, your machinery is so specialized that there are only a few people in the world who can service it. Yes. So uh, our service engineer is coming from the eastern part of Canada, and we're very, very fortunate. Um, the manufacturer says that he is the best in North America. <laughs> so so we're, we were willing to wait to have him come out here. That's fair. <laughs> now, you've painted a really fun picture of uh, project management. Um, if anyone's listening right now and wants to follow in your footsteps, what background or courses or uh, just experience would you recommend they pursue? Um, and a piece of advice I would give uh, to anyone wanting to become a project manager is to make sure they get as much wide experience, so um, good kind of depth, breadth <laughs> uh, of experience as possible. So everything, surely from lab work, of course, you know, in, we're dealing with science here, but also administrative, um, financial uh, aspects of, of the position as well. So once you start building that kind of background, you have your science and technical, um, but you also have uh, uh, human resources and finance background. Um, that really helps be, make you well-rounded into becoming a project manager because a project manager is not just looking, let's say, after the science, but has to make sure is the budget there um, to ensure that the project can be done. Do we have the time and what kind of time uh, allowances do various people on the project have? So it's quite, um, quite a comprehensive uh, role. 
in which the project manager has to look after several aspects of the project instead of just just actually doing the work, which is important, but also managing uh, various other factors in the project. That's great advice, no matter what the field is. Um, you bring to mind all those music- musicians who are great artists, but terrible business managers. And so if they only had basic business training, they w- could avoid a whole world of pain. <laughs> You've been really inspiring today. Uh, who inspired you or who inspires you? I would have to say that um, well, I do thank my parents <laughs> for their support, but also the um, various instructors, professors, and thesis advisors that I've had over the years um, who inspired me to go beyond and outside my comfort zone, um, to push the boundaries, as, as the saying goes. Um, without that push um, I would probably not step out of my comfort comfort zone. So I do thank them for that. Um, and just basically to be bold, uh, to not be afraid to try different things. Um, because only when you try different things do you discover, yes, sometimes uh, a process doesn't work. Um, but when something doesn't work, you do learn something uh, from, from negative results as well. Um, but when a process does work, that's great. But I think we have to take both positive and negative together in, in order to grow um, and to to move forward. So I do do really thank um, my thesis supervisors in shaping me as not only a scientist, but also a manager to make sure that I, I manage my time and the efforts I put in uh, into the science very well all around. Also wonderful advice in any circumstance. <laughs> uh, you work with a lot of students. Um, what do you look for when you're bringing in a student into the lab? Um, so in terms of, uh, well, I've worked with um, undergrad co-op students and I've worked with graduate students and, and also into, um, I guess, postdoctoral fellows who are early career researchers. But in terms of undergrads and those who are just starting out in grad studies, um, of course, I look for enthusiasm. So whether or not they're gung-ho for what they're studying um, just interest in all kinds of things. Um, some of my undergrads who came to work in my lab, they were afraid that they didn't have any previous lab experience. So I looked at their resume and I see, okay, they worked as, you know, in a bakery they were a cashier. You know, that's all fine because you learn all kinds of people skills and on the job skills doing that kind of work. Um, but also some of the students put down that they were part of a sports team. They were captain of their sports team and they were a little sheepish to say, oh, you know, that's all I have on my resume. And I, th- I say, that's fine. That's great because it shows that you have leadership and you're a team player. And I know these, you know, sound like platitudes, but they are very important when you're working in a lab environment where you have many people working together in the same space and you have to respect everyone's boundaries. And for geochemists, you have to respect other people's 
projects are in terms of contamination or, or um, just being very careful with, with what other people are doing in the lab. So uh, when I do see uh, students coming in who, who always say, I don't have prior lab experience, you know, all that other experience from their previous jobs, whatever they may be, even sports or volunteer experience, that's all very important. Wonderful. I love that. Uh, you take the time to see how that experience can actually uh, jive with the position. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, now, you're still a long way from the end of your career, but I'd like you to take yourself to that point. What would you like to be your legacy when you retire? When I retire, which may not be too far along <laughs> from now, um... I think I would like to look back on my career and see that I, I've helped people along the way um, because that's one of the things that I do really like to do um, is to ensure that others, so whether they are undergrad students, graduates, uh, early career researchers, my fellow colleagues, um, faculty members, um, just to see that they fulfill their goals in research or whatever it may be. Um, and I guess in the long term, just to see that I've made a difference, even though it may be a small difference, <laughs> that I was just a small cog in a great machine, um, but every little detail counts and contributes towards the um, final or common goal. So I, I, I hope the legacy that I leave is that I, I've made some sort of contribution to somebody um, such that they succeeded. And when they succeed, I feel like that I have succeeded or at least I contributed to, to, to their success. I love that. That's a very, um, well, a very mature response. Um... Yeah, and very responsible and um, cooperative. Now, I'd like you to, again, look to the future. Um, where do you see labs like yours going in the future? Or what's the future of them look like? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of the changes that are coming um, so they aren't bowled over? Right. Um, so in the future, one of the things I hope that doesn't happen is 100% automation because where would that leave lab techs? <laughs> um, in the future, perhaps we're going to see instruments becoming even more sensitive, um, being able to analyze smaller and smaller quantities of elements and isotopes. Um, and that all means that our preparation techniques need to be cleaner and we have to be more careful. So in terms of students coming into this field um, and working their way through their academic career, um, I think they have to be more and more aware of um, just being very precise scientists. So there's no room, it seems, anymore for being um, non-rigorous. <laughs> we have to just be very clean in our processes. Um, I do remember a grad student, a PhD student, once telling me, 
um, that it was kind of a complaint that her fellow grad students weren't being very clean in the lab. And she was saying, think of the quality of your data, <laughs> um, because she was very stringent on, on keeping her workspace very clean. Um, because in the end, how you work in the lab reflects in the data that you get out of the instrument. So it's, if you, if you put in poorly prepared samples, um, or you, you put in poorly prepared effort, you're going to get poor data and results. So I think students will, will just have to um, uh, make sure that they understand um, what working in a, a, a clean and precise way uh, means. And I, I guess they will realize that when they get to that point in their career, um, because I, I can personally say I learned the hard way uh, having not been trained originally as a chemist and then going into geochemistry, whereby I had very bad, a very bad incidence of contamination in my lab, um, which I didn't realize until it was too late. Yes, and it caused a lot of uh, grief <laughs> for a month and, and a lot of wasted money and time. Um, but from that a uh, very negative experience, um, I learned the importance of being very precise. And um, and this is something I think, yes, students getting into geochemistry will have to think about very carefully to be successful. It's also a good word, word of warning that um, if you're not a, um, a tidy person, uh, maybe lab work isn't for you. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so the same grad student who who said, "Think of the quality of your data," also said, "I wonder what their kitchen and bathroom at home looks like." So yes, the cleanliness and and those habits do start at home, I suppose. Anyone who walks by my office knows that um, I might not be the best person for a lab. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, those are all the questions I have. Did I miss anything, or is there anything you want to add before I let you go? I, I think we covered all the bases today. Alice, thanks for sharing your expertise and your stories and your passion. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.